Welcome to Tech Now with Tom Lyon, the podcast where host Tom Lyon talks with industry leaders about upcoming technology. Now here's Tom. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. That's me, your host. So we've been doing a lot of guests on this show who are kind of old farts like me, because that's kind of my peer group. And of course, it'd be interesting to hear from some of the younger generation at, at some point. The problem there is that the, the cool kids in the younger generation don't want to typically hang out with us old farts. So I, I have today a kind of captive victim for, for us all. <laughs> and uh, he's a hot hotshot young programmer in the bioinformatics space. And he's my son, David Lyon. How are you today, David? I am doing well. A good introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hard to say no to the old man, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when he, you know, hands you a headset. But you know. <laughs> so uh, tell us, tell the world about your uh, how you got started with bioinformatics, which is a bit of an obscure field for many people. Well, when I was a kid, I got really interested in those uh, evolution simulation games, right? Where you have, you know, you start off with a, a, a pool of simulated critters that are doing silly things like hitting walls. And then, you know, some magical piece of code in the computer eventually, uh, you know, selects out the fittest from each generation and then uses some algorithm to breed them together. And then you end up right with a bunch of critters that can somewhat functionally, you know, actually do whatever they were tasked with doing, finding food or making it across some line or something like that. You would like to play a god then, is that it? <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a little bit. Of, yeah, probably a little bit of that, you know, middle school uh, rebellion taken out on digital beings. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, yeah, from there it was, you know, oh, how does this work? And then I read about that. And then, oh, what field is this from? Oh, it's from bioinformatics. Oh, what is bioinformatics? A much bigger field than just silly, you know, evolution simulations. And I got interested in, I started reading papers that I didn't understand from places like uh, PLOS, Public Library of Science, uh, and uh, things like that. And it, it, I don't know, it intrigued me and I got really interested in it. And I was, I was on board the bioinformatics train before I really even got to high school. I think I was in high school saying, I know what I want to major in. Uh, and then I was looking for right. colleges saying, I know what I want to major in. And then I was in college and graduated with that major. And now I work as a bioinformatics developer. Yep. Yeah. And of course, uh, somewhere along there, you self-taught yourself programming languages. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I think uh, I think I kind of started doing that when I was a much younger kid, though. Like with the uh, first thing I ever remember coding in was uh, Chipmunk Basic. Oh my god, that's right. I don't. I think was encouraged by you, but I don't think was initiated by you. I think I, one of my friends uh, was the first to bring that up. I had a firm grasp of programming before I really started encountering bioinformatics and like trying to wrap my head around it. I think. And then right out of high school, you got a internship with a company doing some kind of blood bio thing what, what company was that right there was a um a company it got bought like immediately after uh i the, my internship ended but uh it was called what was it called i've forgotten um 20 something not 20 uh yeah i yeah. was i yeah uh, i can't remember what it's called this is going to be edited right um 
Uh, I can't actually Maybe remember not. what it's called. Yeah, but uh, trying to figure from, out. A, from, from a high-level point of view, it, it was kind of doing the thing that Ther- Theranos claimed to be doing. Right, exactly. It was. Course, um, Theranos, Theranos turned into a huge Silicon Valley scandal. Lots of, it, lots it, of people probably going to jail for that stuff. <laughs> it's weird if somebody is like, sees it on my resume or something like that and asks me what they do and then I explain what they do and then the first thing they think of is oh that company that like you know imploded it's a it's a a touchy subject but it was great it was a great opportunity to learn uh, a lot of really interesting stuff you 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 had totally honest people in your startup right exactly yeah which is probably why they went out probably why they went out of business right (laughs) I think they sold rather than going out of business oh okay well that's good yeah and then you found your way to Franklin Marshall College, yes. right? Yep, Franklin and Marshall College, which I chose because it was small and they had an interesting bioinformatics opportunities. Um, yeah, it was a very good good place for me because uh, I had you know a lot of a personal relationship with the professors, but also they ha- they had two separate departments, but then there were good collaborations. It was it was a good uh, it, was a, it was a good place. Let's talk about uh, how you found uh, the place you are now and what they right. do. Between my junior and senior year in college, I did an internship uh, through the NSF, the National and the National Science Foundation, and it's a REU, a Research Experience for Undergraduates uh, program. And uh, I applied to a program at a place called Boyce Thompson Institute, which is where I currently work, for a uh, plant genome research uh, project internship in a bioinformatics lab. And I got in. I got a message from them while I was traveling in Nicaragua saying, you've got in, we need you to fax us something. And I said, I don't have access to a fax machine. And... (laughs) But they, they still let me in. I did an internship there for a summer, and uh, they didn't let me leave. They kept me on as a part-time contractor when I while I finished up uh, my college uh, degree. And then uh, once I was done with my degree, they hired me on full-time, and I've been working there ever since. Which uh, they must like you a lot, and uh, you must like them because you have to live in Ithaca, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a nice place. It's, I mean, I may be a more of a city person, but it is a, it's a nice town. But uh, yeah, it gets very cold in the winters. But yes, I definitely, the job definitely makes it worth it. So how about plant genomics? I mean, that I just want to mention for the the broader audience, the whole area area of genomics, you know, study of DNA. That's part of bioinformatics. Right. Yeah. And uh, unlike most of the people who are out to make who are out to make big money, you're studying uh, plant genomics. Which is, yeah. which is which is merely good for the world as opposed to money making. <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, if you're if you're if you're determined, and there there are companies you can work for to make money off of it. But uh, yeah, a lot of the research in plant genomics is uh, very much academic or uh, in nonprofit organizations like where I work. And so yeah, uh, all the projects I work on are completely open source, uh, and we work with uh, breeders uh, and uh, nonprofit organizations in uh, South America and all throughout Africa, really, mostly concentrated in West Africa, to help them breed better crops, safer, more stable crops uh, that have higher yields and better chances for economic development, uh, along with uh, nutritional justice and things like that. Very cool. And your uh, particular role is is still very much a 
programming and computer science role of trying yes. to figure out how the heck to analyze DNA, right? Right. So I have uh, two different roles, really. I have most of my time is spent as a software engineer working on uh, data, plant breeding databases and creating visualizations for user uh, for uh, breeders to use, along with uh, you know different ways of storing genomic and phenotypic data and tools to analyze those data. And then another thing that I do is I uh, help various researchers that work in the same building as I do develop software to help them do science, whatever that may be, right? So um, I've worked on a few tools. I'm, I'm on a paper for one of them, which is about finding recombination points in inbred lines of plants. So where you take two parents and you uh, breathe them together over and over again until you have a line where you can easily differentiate different parts of the genome and then use that to quantitatively uh, associate those parts of the genome to some phenotypes, so some trait that the plant exhibits. You can uh, do some statistical analysis and find out where on the genome is most associated with plant height. And then you can see, okay, so there's this one marker that is very associated with gene height. Um, maybe we want to start looking there and seeing how we can get two plants to breed together that might have a, a better effect. And so one of the tools I've worked on is primarily focused on finding the points of recombination in the genome. So where where the breakpoints are between the genetic information that comes from parent A and the genetic information that comes from parent B. And uh, one thing you've told me before is how unlike what people might expect, plant plant genomes are far more complex than animal or human genomes, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, plant genomes, plants are much more tolerant to having weird DNA. In humans, if you duplicate a chromosome or duplicate an entire genome, you know, if you have a giant indel or you have a transposable element that, you know, inserts itself in the DNA in a different place. In humans, those are all really big problems. We have very compact, in in some way, DNA compared to plants, or at least we're very reliant on the structure of our DNA. Um, in plants, you have situations where you can have, you know, a full genome duplicate in a plant, and the only noticeable difference be the plant is slightly bigger. If that happened in a human, the human would not survive. And so you have, yeah, you have a lot of unique issues in plants because of that, where you have to do much more complicated data analysis because you have a higher dimensionality to the data, right? You have more quote-unquote parallel strands of uh, DNA that you need to be able to analyze. Yeah, I think you mentioned that whereas humans have two copies of each chromosome, there's there's some plants with 127 copies or something. Yeah, there's plants with the many, many copies. I don't know the exact number, but that's there are, there are plants with at least 127, I, w I would expect. Yeah. And of course, all, all this analysis is very heavy on interesting new algorithms, right? So right. can you talk a little about what, what all that's based on? Um, so a lot of the algorithms that are used are uh, especially for alignment and for assembly of genomes. Uh, are are basically their edit distance algorithms, right? You're interested in knowing how close are these two strings to one each one another. So you have, you know, uh, a a string that essentially has an alphabet of A, T, C, and G. 
it gets a little more complicated when you get a little more probabilistic. Um, but and you want to know what is the essentially what's the predicted edit distance between two strings, and then you can use that information to say you can talk about the similarity, or you can talk about you know how they how they how their ends might match up, so that you can start constructing longer strands from very short. Um, fragments of DNA that you can read more easily. And so, yeah, there's uh, a lot of the original bioinformatics algorithms, al- algorithms come from linguistics, where you have that sort of string editing and uh, comparison algorithms. Uh, and now as we're kind of moving on, there's, yeah, there's a lot of uh, things like hidden Markov models, right, which also often used in kind of linguistic analysis, more with audio though, right, where you have, you want to analyze the state or uh, repeating patterns or uh, in DNA. Yeah, I, I think I once knew what a hidden Markov model was, but <laughs> that was back when, back when I was smart. It's, it's a good one. It's a, it's a, it's a surprisingly <laughs> simple uh, uh, way of representing um multiple states of of uh, of a system and uh how they output and how how you can differentiate those states from their output yeah and then there's a bunch of bunch of research into algorithms specific for you know to dna stuff and yeah you had a you told me a very interesting name for the the algorithms that work on animals but not plants did I? I don't know. What what was the name? <laughs> uh, man, you missed your setup line. Calgorithms. Cow- oh, right. Calgorithms. Yeah. I forgot about that joke. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, there are many. Uh, a lot of the money in bioinformatics is in the medical uh area and because of that um, and because of a lot of the models that we use for medical uh, science is our sorry our animals um, we have a lot of research uh, funding towards developing uh, algorithms that are specifically or uh, just incidentally uh, able to be used much more easily on animals but when you have uh, you know an entire different kingdom of life uh, that treats DNA very differently. Um, you do you, you kind of have a, a, a lack in the in the plant algorithm plant specific algorithm area, right? Where you have to do all this very complicated phasing of chromosomal information and things like that. Uh, let's talk a little about your your day to day tools, right? So as a as yep. someone who's heavy on computer science, being thrown in with a bunch of biologists. What did, mm-hmm. what did you discover about the state of the art? Yeah, I think in growing up in Silicon Valley and having done internships in Silicon Valley, uh, I definitely, before I really like got into it, kind of expected to like walk into any tech environment and be like, oh, all the new tools are here, everything is shiny. But it turns out that you know, especially in science and uh, in fields where you rely on previous research, you have a lot of legacy. Uh, infrastructure and a lot of legacy data and a lot of you know you have systems that were set up a long time ago that you still have to be able to interact with you have tools that were programmed in you know the 90s or the early 2000s that you then need to you know learn how to interface with something like node.js right like you need uh, those you need those interfacing skills along with uh, your uh, your fancy new tools um, and so yeah there's um there is definitely uh, a contrast in the way that 
kind of the tech is moving forward in like Silicon Valley versus in kind of the science-y, uh, at least, you know, in my experience, uh, science-y realms, um, things yeah. tend to move slower just because of uh, legacy stuff. I guess another problem is, you know, there's not really any database that's appropriate for this kind of stuff either. Right, which is, what what do you mean there's not, I mean. You you mentioned some of the trouble of uh, trying to cram DNA information into the relational database. Yeah, the things, there, um, there's a lot of issues with, yeah, trying to, (laughs) yeah, there's not, uh, you know, DNA specific, bioinformatics specific tools are definitely not as modern as, uh, you know, things like, I don't know, website scraping might be. But, um, yeah, yeah, you have, uh, uh, you know, people trying to move to graph databases with their DNA information and struggling with that or, you know, trying to format their, uh, you know, trying to break up or compress their DNA data so that it, you know, can be used in different types of data storage. Um, And a a lot of that is super intensive work that biologists that have turned to computer science might not have the training to do, where, you know, computer scientists who know that stuff might be in much higher demand, at least financially, in a different sector. And so you do kind of have a lack of uh, infrastructure development there, which is part of what a lot of the projects I'm working on are, are trying to solve. Yeah, and I guess you're uh, you're making some waves. You've been invited to quite a few conferences now, right? Yeah, I mean, part of that is you know incidental to the job, but I like to think I I'm contributing. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the big projects I I'm kind of an evangelist for. I, I'm I wouldn't say I'm a particularly important person on the team, but I um, I'm a big fan of it as long. Uh, uh, along with contributing to it, is the uh, the BRAPI project, which is the plant breeding API. And that is uh, a standard that uh, is being developed between a lot of different organizations for uh, a RESTful API for data transfer. Um, and along with doing that, you create a standard for data representation. And I think that's a very important step in uh, creating compatibility between systems and also allow- allowing uh, development to be uh, better allocated, right? So that you don't have two people working on the same tool uh, just because you have two different types of input data. That's something else you see a lot in bioinformatics where you have two different tools that do the exact same thing using the same algorithms, but just take a different input because one person used a different program before it in the pipeline than somebody else. And that effort, that duplicated effort, I think, is something that is much more, it's much easier to compensate for uh, in like a, in Silicon Valley or somewhere where there's a lot of uh, financial incentive, right? Because you have people trying to optimize. Um, But in science, uh, you know, the funding that goes into building those you know, very similar tools might be better spent somewhere else. So I think having those standards, developing standards, is an important part of uh, science technology. Certainly an important part of every every kind of technology I've run into. <laughs> and it sounds like uh, sounds like you're using some pretty modern approaches, so that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, we're doing our best. <laughs> so you you uh, 
offhandedly mentioned being in Nicaragua back when you got your BTI job offer. Yes. And uh, I should I should tell the world that David is a total chocolate nerd. I am so, indeed. So he was there on a uh, well, I don't know why you explain your your field trip to Nicaragua. Right. I went with uh, a group um, from Palo Alto, area, Palo Alto area called the Chocolate Garage. Um, and uh, it was a trip to look at um, chocolate production. So, uh, you know, who's growing the chocolate? Uh, you know, how does it go from pretty much, you know, how does it go from seed in soil or graft in soil to um, a bar that you can eat? Um, and so we got to see the whole process um, in a not super, you know, uh, a groomed manner, right? We went to real farms where people were really doing these things and looked at, uh, you know, what what they were doing in terms of pesticide and stuff like that, how they were growing their trees, how they were managing their fields, um, you know, how much they were watering them, uh, things like that. And uh, we got to see... Uh, the fermentation process that chocolate goes through. A lot of people don't know that chocolate is fermented, but it's one of the most important steps in making a bar of chocolate. Fermentation is my friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then after it's fermented, it's dried. And then after it's dried, um, it's normally shipped to the U.S. or to another country where they turn into a bar. Um, But there is a movement towards, you know, doing the added value of making it into a bar uh, in country uh, for economic uh justice and things like that well very yeah. cool so. I, I can assure the world that uh if you want to be able to source good chocolate make friends with david <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna argue with that i i have to say i i am fully confident in my ability to source good chocolate <laughs> <laughs> okay well that's pretty much all the time we have to, for today thank you very much for putting up with the demands of your old man. Thanks for having me. All right. And I wish you further luck in your interesting career. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We welcome your feedback. And tell your friends to tune in. 